From 1984 through 1991, thousands of fires were intentionally set from Southern California to the Central Coast to the Central Valley and countless places in between. Homes, businesses, dry brush, nothing was off limits. The arsonist left virtually nothing behind in the way of evidence that could ever be traced back to him for years. The damage and destruction soared into the millions, countless millions, and four innocent lives were lost. The arsonist was brazen. He set fires with impunity, and he managed to get away with it for a long time until he finally slipped up and left behind a clue that would eventually lead investigators right to him. It was then that it became clear why this pyromaniac was able to set fire after fire after fire while managing to elude capture. He was one of them, often investigating the very fires that he was setting, busting arsonists while moonlighting as one. Driven by a desire for attention, to be a hero, to be the very best at arson investigation, to garner recognition for his dedication to his job, while he steadily rose through the ranks. But there was also an insatiable desire to feed his own sadomasochistic sexual urges, which for him was to watch things burn. It took investigators years to catch on to him. And even when he did come up as a possible suspect, nobody who knew him or worked with him were even willing to entertain the possibility that he was the arsonist that they sought. This only emboldened him even more and allowed for the devastation and destruction to continue for much longer than it should have. Even years later, there are still many who refuse to believe that he was responsible. Join me as I tell this story of the most prolific serial arsonist the state of California, possibly the entire country, had ever seen. You are listening to California Dreaming, and this is the tale of the Firestarter. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. As always, I'd like to remind you that this is a completely independent, ad-free, one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can help support. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you listen to your shows on. That helps give us more visibility and pushes us up the charts where new listeners can find us. You can also recommend us in true crime fan groups. On Facebook, you can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. And if you simply cannot get enough of California Dreaming, you can subscribe to our Patreon where you will be able to binge dozens of exclusive full-length episodes of the show. And if a subscription is just not your thing, you can make a one-time donation to the show through the email californiapod at gmail.com. All right, let's get on with the story. In the last part, we left off where a fingerprint was discovered on one of the incendiary devices recovered from an arson fire. The fingerprint was found on a piece of yellow lined paper. It had been partially burnt, but the fingerprint was intact. And investigator Captain Marvin Casey wanted to investigate some 55 people that he narrowed an attendance list down who had all gone to that seminar 
in Fresno. Before Orr went to that Fresno seminar, he had been assigned a new partner, Doug Stobbs. He had been an officer with the Glendale Police Department for eight years. It better suited Orr because it meant that he could be the one with the seniority this time, which for a small man like him, that's a big deal. So he thought the dynamic would work much better for him. But there was still the fact that Doug Stobbs was was very tall and he was muscular. He was 10 years younger than John Orr, so we can probably just assume that the guy was ruggedly handsome with chiseled features. But that's just my own conjecture. I don't know that for a fact. So if ever these two were faced with the situation where they would have to fight or chase somebody, then Orr could just send his new young hot partner after the guy. However, Orr did get rid of him in a matter of months. He complained that Stobbs had acted way too much like a stereotypical cop. Whatever the hell that means, because he was a cop. He was probably better, bigger, stronger, better looking. He probably had a superior 80s cop mustache, too. So Stobbs was sent back to his regular job, being a police officer with the Glendale Police Department. In 1988, a third person was assigned to be Orr's partner. But this time, it was John Orr's friend, the guy that he liked to go camping and hunting with, Don Yeager. But it didn't mean Orr was going to be able to work with him, even though he wasn't a cop, he was a fellow firefighter. It didn't automatically mean that Orr was going to be any more capable of working with another person. Yeager did have kind of a gruff personality, but because they did have a friendship, they gave it a chance. The Glendale Police Department weren't exactly thrilled that they chose a firefighter for the job over a cop, and the department began insinuating that Orr kept dumping their guys so that he could bring in a firefighter instead. They all knew that he was feeling some kind of bad way about cops. It was pretty obvious. During this time, Orr also wrote another article for their professional publication, the American Fire Journal. It was entitled Profiles in Arson, the Serial Arsonist. Being a writer conducting training classes for arson investigators, not to mention all the extracurricular stuff Orr got himself into off-duty, he was pretty much known to just about everybody in the firefighting community across Southern California. So now we're going to jump to the Arson Seminar, another event. This one was Symposium for Arson Conference. It was four days this time, starting on Sunday, March 5th, 1989. And it was going to be held in the city of Pacific Grove, California, which is just about as far north up California as Fresno. But instead of being in the Central Valley, this was along the coast near Monterey Bay, and John Orr was going to be attending this event. It was a bit more scenic. There was much more to see there than in Fresno. So several of the attendees decided to head up early to hang out for the weekend before they had to go to the conference. On Friday, March 3rd, two days before the symposium, a little more than a couple hours drive south of Pacific Grove in a place called Cornet Variety Store, 
The place was pretty busy with customers when somebody suddenly screamed fire. A store clerk quickly found a fire extinguisher and ran towards the back of the store where the fire that had been set in a display of foam pillows was at and was able to put the fire out before it got out of control. The next afternoon, on Saturday, March 4th, a second fire broke out about 20 miles or 32 kilometers away from the first fire in the city of Salinas. This time it happened in a store called Woolworths. It was coming from an aisle where foam pillows were on display. This fire caused a tremendous amount of damage to the store, but luckily nobody was hurt. Investigators suspected arson immediately. From Sunday, March 5th, the start of the symposium through March 8th, the final day, all was quiet. That was the last day of the symposium, so most of those who attended the event did check out of their hotels that day, and once everything wrapped up, they would make their way back home. The next day, however, fires began breaking out again. The first one was in the morning in the town of Atascadero, which is about two hours south of Pacific Grove off of Highway 101 at Pacific Home Improvement. Around 9.30 that morning, an employee found that there had been a fire in a section where they sold rolls of foam padding. Things had been burned, but the fire apparently extinguished on its own. The employee took the burnt merchandise off the shelves, and that is when he discovered a cigarette wrapped in matches and yellow paper that was partially burned. About two hours after the attempted fire at Pacific Home Improvement, around 11.30 that morning, a fire broke out at the Atascadero branch of Cornet Variety Store. It was towards the back of the store in the section where they sold bags of shredded rubber foam. This fire triggered the sprinkler system, which kept it from spreading. Fire engines arrived and extinguished it completely. Employees noted a couple of suspicious people, a young couple. They were white, pretty nondescript, both of them with dirty blonde hair. And then another guy in about his 40s who kept trying to pay for his stuff while everyone around him were running for their lives. 40 minutes later, still in Atascadero, fire number five of this spree broke out in a store called Coast to Coast Hardware in the aisle where they displayed rolls of plastic sheeting and foam products. Several employees of the store were able to put the flames out before they spread using a powder-dry chemical. Nobody noticed anybody suspicious. So this series of fires all happened along California Highway 101, all of them in a row, heading south. Fire number six was massive. This one occurred still on Friday, March 9th, about 20 miles south of Atascadero in the city of San Luis Obispo at a store called the Party Exchange. A customer noticed smoke and flames rising from the back of the store and immediately let a store employee know. That employee began alerting customers and helping them exit. She tried to find an extinguisher but ended up inhaling too much smoke and needed to be helped out to safety too. The building burned to the ground. From speaking to witnesses, investigators determined that the fire started in a section where they sold packaging materials. 
So the news of this fire spree along California's central coast from Morro Bay to Salinas to Atascadero to San Luis Obispo made its way back to Captain Marvin Casey. Remember back in 1987, his theory was that the Central Valley fires might have been linked to the arson seminar in Fresno. Well, you better believe that he noticed that these fires took place at the same exact time as the most recent arson symposium in Pacific Grove. He knew it. He knew it all along. This fire spree coincided with a major arson-related event, and this was for the second time that he made that connection. So Casey got the attendance roster for the symposium, and this time what he was going to do was narrow the list down to those who lived in Southern California, but also those who attended the seminar from two years earlier. Once he would compile that list of names, he knew that he would be looking at a list that included the arsonist that he was looking for, and he had that fingerprint. Marvin Casey was very excited and very hopeful When he narrowed the list down, he came up with the names of 10 individuals, 10 people who traveled from the South, who traveled alone, and who attended both events. When Casey checked in with his bosses, they still did not believe that any of those esteemed firefighters and investigators that he had on his list would have had anything to do with these fires. They refused to even entertain the possibility. So Captain Casey was on his own. One of the names on Casey's list was one that he was familiar with, John Orr. A couple of years earlier, he had attended a class that Orr was teaching, so he would be able to obtain his certifications. Orr's reputation preceded him, so Casey was looking forward to meeting the man at the time, the man, the legend that he had heard so much about. So when they had gotten together after class at a local bar, Casey was hoping that he'd be able to introduce himself to Orr and that maybe he'd have a chance to talk to him. But Orr spent the whole night hitting on women. One of you asked in the Facebook group, how is it that this guy was with so many different women? All I have to say about that is, if you toss your line out there enough, you're bound to catch something. I mean, I've said Orr was a womanizer and had a reputation as such, That doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that these women were attractive or desirable. I mean, who doesn't like a firefighter, am I right? Well, except for John Orr because he's an imbecile. But anyway, Casey wanted to talk to him at this bar that they had gone to, but he figured he'd have to get to know Orr another time, maybe when there weren't so many women floating around. Well, the good news for Marvin Casey was the fact that the Bakersfield Fire Marshal was going to go ahead and allow him to investigate his theory, but he was going to have to do it on his own time, and he was fine with that. He just needed to go ahead in order to be able to look into the people on his list who were all very highly regarded arson investigators or firefighters. The idea that Casey was going to investigate one of their own didn't really sit well with very many people. But it wasn't going to be something that Casey was going to let go or get past until he eliminated each one of them. He called the ATF agent that he spoke with back in 1987 who told him to forget about it when he asked to investigate his list of 55 people. That was ATF agent Chuck Gallion, who also worked out of Fresno. This time, now that the list had been narrowed down to only 10 people, 
Galleon said that he would go ahead and take the latent print from the partially burnt piece of yellow paper recovered from the Craftmart fire in Bakersfield, along with the fingerprint cards of the 10 people he had on his list, and he would work on it in their lab in Fresno. The prints were analyzed by one of the veteran fingerprint examiners, and his report came back as negative. The latent print didn't match any of the fingerprints of the 10 arson investigators. Marvin Casey was highly disappointed, and he figured his colleagues were going to have a good laugh about this. So that was that. He figured there was no point in chasing that lead anymore. Back down in Glendale, California, John Orr had applied for the position of fire captain. He had taken the exam, and out of everyone who were vying for the position, Orr received the highest score. In April of 1989, he was promoted. It meant a big boost in pay, and then a couple more months, his youngest kid would be turning 18, so no more paying child support either. Therefore, Orr treated himself to a brand new white Chevy Blazer. He was entertaining the idea of taking his writing skills to the next level by writing a novel. But he was pretty content, for the most part at this time in his career, of just lounging around in his free time. With the added income and being pretty content, sort of, with wife number four, Wanda, everything was pretty chill and carefree for Captain John Orr. Brush fires were still cropping up in the hills overlooking Glendale, so that was keeping Orr busy at work. However, he was growing more and more dissatisfied with his friend-turned-partner, Don Yeager, and it seemed it had something to do with him being bitter about Orr having been promoted to captain. And from what we know about Orr, if he starts disliking someone or isn't getting along, they'll be gone because his little man ego just can't take it. He did it with his partners at work, and he did it with his partners at home. So then, by the beginning of the new decade, 1990, John Orr finally began writing his novel. He titled it Points of Origin. In June of 1990, another symposium was scheduled in Fresno. However, this time, Orr was going to go ahead and hang back and send his new partner instead. On June 27th, temperature soared into triple digits. In Celsius, that would be the high 30s, low 40s. In fact, by mid-afternoon, it was 110 degrees Fahrenheit or 43 degrees Celsius in the city of Glendale and the Santa Ana winds were coming through strong. It was dry and the hillsides were prone to fires every year. 1990 was particularly dry and the summer was particularly hot. And every year, the media would come to report on the fires. And every year, Orr would speak to the media and express his belief that the same person was coming back every year and setting these fires. At 3.24 p.m. on the 27th of June, a fire broke out and was going up a hillside overlooking Glendale. Rookie firefighter James Frawley rode in with an engine, number 226. They were the second engine to arrive at the fire. Heading towards the fire, they had sirens and lights on, trying to weave through traffic. Just as they were coming up the roads, the truck made a turn, and Frawley happened to notice a guy 
standing near the bottom of the hill where it was reported that the fire had started. As they got closer, he immediately recognized that man to be John Orr. He was just standing there, as Frawley put it, sifting through some stuff. They kept heading towards the fire, and Frawley really didn't think much more about Orr standing there at the base of the hill. Another fire captain, Greg Jones, saw Orr near his new Chevy Blazer, pretty close to the location where the fire had started. Jones had already been there working on preventing the fire from jumping the freeway, and it confused him that he really couldn't figure out how Orr got there because Jones had been there first. How did Orr pass by and get to the location of the origin of the fire without him noticing? Soon Orr came up to Jones and asked if there was anything that he needed. He was like, yes, take the hose over to the house whose fence was on fire and work on keeping it from jumping to the structure. Jones went to work on a nearby home next door whose roof was starting to burn. Several minutes had passed when Jones came back towards his fire truck parked on the street, and when he glanced over at John Orr, he saw that he wasn't protecting the home as he had instructed him to do. He didn't have the hose and he wasn't dousing the area to prevent the fire from spreading. But instead, Orr was bringing in protection covers into the home that Jones was working on. Why is this guy worried about protecting the assets inside of the home when its roof is on fire? It wasn't safe enough to even be thinking about doing that. But Jones stood there in stunned silence as he watched Orr carry the protection cover into the burning home. The fire was in the process of consuming the entire attic. Orr walked inside, put the cover over a sofa, walked back out, and got back into his car and drove off. He never sprayed down the next door house with water like he had been told. To Jones, Orr appeared to be visibly upset and seemingly had no idea what he was doing, like he was confused. Fires were breaking out virtually all over the hills above the city, with help coming from all over the place. They were fighting the fires from the ground and from the air, but they just kept cropping up. The skies over Southern California were turning gray with smoke. West Covina firefighter Moses Gomez heard that massive fires were burning in Glendale. He picked up the phone and asked if he could help, and he was told yes. When you get here, go to the command post. Come as quickly as you can. So when he arrived, he checked in, and nearby he saw John Orr standing close to his Chevy. He recognized him because he knew who Orr was. Gomez went over to him and asked if he could help. Orr was like, sure, and told him his partner was attending the symposium in Fresno. Orr pointed to an area of burnt-out brush that he had cordoned off with some yellow tape and told Gomez that this is where the fire started. So Gomez asked him if he found anything, and Orr told him that he discovered a delayed device, a delayed incendiary device. And then he showed him a disposable lighter that he had placed inside an evidence tube and that it had been tampered with so that the butane would keep coming out. So the two of them headed back to the command post, and the chief told John Orr that the media was asking them for an update. Orr said that there wasn't very much to report, but soon reporters were going up to Orr with their mics in his face asking for comments. 
So contrary to what he had just told the chief, that there wasn't much to report, Orr began giving the reporters all the information that he had up to that point. He told them where the fire was started. He said how he found a lighter and that had been tampered with to enable it to keep the butane flowing out of it. He gave the media every single detail of his investigation up to that point, which means he was giving the arsonist every detail too. They never, ever gave out so much important details that would only be known to the person who started the fire. Now, the whole world was in the know. So anyway, Gomez got in the car with John Orr since he had accepted his offer to help, told him that his partner was out of town. They began driving around where the forest was continuing to burn, being fanned by the Santa Ana winds. But as they kept driving, Gomez was kind of noticing that they really weren't doing much of anything, which is basically the story of John Orr's life, right? They were fire investigators. They should have really been talking to witnesses to see if there was anyone who may have seen any suspicious people or vehicles in the area before the fire started. So this random direction list driving around went on for about a half hour. Eventually, they got back to the command post where they found that a detective from the Glendale Police Department had been sent to work with the arson investigators. He was busy speaking to witnesses who lived close to the point of origin. One witness told him that just before she saw the fire, she saw a man kind of leaning over at the base of the hill with his back turned to her. He was about 5 foot 10 or 1.77 meters tall. He had dark colored hair. And when he moved, she could see his face a little bit more and he had a mustache. He had on khakis and his vehicle was white, possibly a light tan or an ivory color. Or had been there as the detective was speaking to this witness but he didn't talk to her. He wasn't even with them. He asked her if he could go inside and use the bathroom. The witness said she saw all of this while looking out her bathroom window. So Orr kind of wanted to see that vantage point without anybody else knowing. He stood in the bathroom and stared at the spot that she saw the man. It was already after 11 p.m. that night. By then, Gomez had been there for about five hours and he still didn't think that he and Orr had gotten anything done. Finally, they got back into Orr's car and began driving towards a neighborhood. Orr thought maybe they could sit and park and wait to see if they saw anyone suspicious. But for Gomez, it was just more wasted time. Orr wasn't really being much help. He seemed to be preoccupied with something else. Gomez had no idea what that could have been. Why was Orr's mind not on these fires that kept sweeping through the hills of Glendale? Why was he seemingly aloof? Finally, they decided to call it a night. Orr said that he would get in touch with Gomez the next day, but he didn't. So Gomez reached out to him, but Orr kind of brushed him aside. He's got this. Don't worry about it. He'll send him a report a little bit later. But he never did. Gomez described Orr as being and acting really bizarre that night. And he wasn't the only one who thought so. As I said a moment ago, there was an arson investigator symposium up in Pacific Grove that was going on the afternoon that these fires in the hills of Glendale had started. This would be June 27th, 1990. 
or had decided to stay in Glendale while he sent his partner, Don Yeager, to the event instead. As Yeager was getting ready to hang out at the bar at the hotel, a colleague from Pasadena found him and asked him, have you seen the news about Glendale? Yeager was like, no. Well, he better call his guys up. It's kind of a big deal. So Yeager contacted the dispatcher and was updated about the fires that had been raging all afternoon. He needed to get back there, but he decided to go ahead and head back first thing in the morning. It was a little bit late to start making such a long drive. By the time Yeager hung up the phone, the fires had turned into the largest in Glendale's history. Yeager raced back from Pacific Grove as fast as he could the next morning. It was a three and a half hour drive. He went straight to the command post. A few minutes later, Orr happened to see Yeager, and he was really shocked that he was there. Like, what are you doing here? Yeager was like, well, considering this is the most massive fire we've ever seen in the city, I kind of thought you might need my help. And Orr was like, I don't. I got this. His exact words were that he had it under control. And Yeager was like, what in the world? Nothing about this fire was under control at that point. He asked Orr if he had spoken to witnesses or conducted any searches or said that the Glendale Police Department was handling that. Yeager didn't understand. Canvassing the area was 100% their obligation. They never passed it off onto law enforcement. They are the arson investigators. What the hell was Orr doing? Yeager was getting nowhere fast with Orr, so... He went to go do his own canvassing, and he went to speak with the officers about what they had found. Turns out, none of the police officers knew anything about being assigned to canvas or talk to witnesses. Nobody had done it. The following day, Orr updated Yeager about what he found. He told him about the lighter and the place where he believed that the fire started. Later on down the road, it's believed that that lighter was planted in order to make it seem like that these fires were not linked with the other ones that had the cigarette incendiary devices. So Orr tells Yeager where the fire had started. It was in a place where there was dry brush and trash that had been littered. Yeager just did what he could. He was following up with witnesses. He was fielding calls with potential leads. It became apparent very quickly that Orr wasn't doing anything to help. All he was doing was writing long, wordy reports for the file. He wrote in great detail about all the damage that the fire was causing, and he had several long-winded theories as to how the fire was able to spread so quickly, what factors had played into that. He wasn't doing anything at all to help the investigation, which is what they needed. They needed to try and figure out who set this fire, and nothing that Orr was doing was helping to move that along. And because we know Orr and what he's like, he's probably getting off on writing about all the stuff that he had seen and what the fire had damaged and how the fire started. That's the sort of stuff that, you know, you know what he does and how it makes him feel all aroused. I don't even want to think about it. Anyway... Yeager finally confronted Orr. He was like, look, I'm going to have to go to the chief. I need my old partner. You're not doing anything 
that has anything to do with anything involving the investigation. You're doing everything but help. We don't need this. And Aura told him, go ahead. I want you to complain to our boss. So Yeager did, telling the chief that Orr was doing stuff that wasn't essential to the immediate investigation. This fire was turning out to be the biggest disaster that Glendale had ever been faced with. So why is he writing stories about how the fire spread? We don't need that. The chief was like, dude, you got to just take it up with Orr himself. But Yeager fired back. He's not working with me on this investigation because you keep demanding that he do other stuff. He was blaming the chief. Well, the reason why he was blaming the chief is because that's what Orr had insinuated, that the chief was the one giving him piles and piles of paperwork that needed to get done. The chief stopped in his tracks and he was like, whoa, hold up. I didn't tell him to do anything but focus on this fire. And in fact, I told him to not work on anything else. This was the top priority. Yeager was embarrassed. What the hell was Orr doing? He went back to Orr and told him what the chief had said, but he insisted that what he told Yeager was true. The chief ordered him to do all this extra work. Now, Yeager didn't know what to think. In the end, the report from John Orr on this fire, which is known as the College Hills Fire, was flawed and incomplete. In fact, there was very little attention given to the report and the investigation. And for such a significant arson event, it should not have been handled this way. Orr's report was littered with useless information and speculation about the damage caused and the manner in which the fire spread. The biggest problem with Orr being in the position that he was in as fire captain and arson investigator is that there's this idea that he didn't need to be supervised. As a result of that, the College Hills fire just got filed away. 46 homes were destroyed. 20 more were damaged. A total of $50 million in damages. When I put that into the inflation calculator, that would be more than double, $103 million. Nobody was killed, fortunately. There were a few minor injuries, though several families did lose their pets, not to mention irreplaceable heirlooms and family photos. But since there were no human deaths, the criticism of the investigation was minimal. One impact this fire did have was it raised the budget for the Glendale Fire Department. And of course, Orr would be taking advantage of that. This fire would eventually push Yeager out of his job as Orr's partner. Orr wanted him gone anyway. The chief told him, look, let him get to his three years with you in December and then we'll transfer him. That way it'll look kind of like a normal rotation. Orr couldn't stand waiting five more months to get rid of him. He continued to whine like a bitch. He complained and whined and pouted and wah, 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 all the complaints about his partner until the chief finally had enough. So he finally agreed to replace him. Or was assigned a fourth partner in October of 1990. His name is Joe Lopez. He had been a firefighter for 10 years. He was tall, strong, young, and fit. And I think that they knew that they needed to assign somebody who was the complete, total, polar opposite when it came to physical appearance than John Orr. You know, 
agile and physically fit and probably really good looking. Definitely somebody that Orr would be able to assign to any fights and foot chases. Because, you know, Orr is getting old and a little soft around the middle, kind of like a big old round roly-poly. Another thing that Orr did was he taught fire investigation classes. When firefighters took these courses, they could eventually take examinations to become certified investigators, too. There were only six arson investigators in California that led these classes, and Orr was one of them. There was one thing that happened to Orr some years back involving one of these classes that would never stop bothering him, like a lot of things in Orr's life. So there had been a police chief from up north that sent one of his officers down to take Orr's week-long class. When he was done, the police chief was pleased with Orr's course, and he wrote about it giving him a review. I'm not sure where this was written, if it was in one of their publications or in a newsletter. I was about to say maybe it was in an email, but this is pre-email era, so that wouldn't have happened. But anyway, when he wrote these nice things about Orr and the class that he taught, he accidentally referred to him as Detective Orr. Well, this got back to one of the police captains in Glendale who requested that Orr come to his office. Now, while the police captain appreciated the good work that Orr was doing administering these classes, he was given a harsh admonishment about falsely presenting himself as a detective or any member of law enforcement for that matter. He was not a cop. He was with the fire department and he is not to go around telling people that he is. A note was also sent to the fire chief telling him that he needed to sit down and have a talk with Orr and discuss him going around implying and telling people that he was a real police officer. John Orr was humiliated again. Oh, and by the way, Captain Marvin Casey, he actually earned his investigation certification from a class that John Orr taught. So Orr had a way of hanging on to all of these criticisms and knockdowns. But he worked really hard at pushing past it all, and he continued to think that or convince himself that he was living his best life. He was on wife number four and partner number four at work, and both seemed to be doing okay. His wife had a great job, and he felt like he had the best job the city of Glendale had to offer. He didn't have to wear a fireman's uniform anymore. He was given a car by the city. And he racked up overtime every chance that he got. His novel was coming along well also. According to the book Fire Lover, when it came to Orr's career, he stated, I'm proud that I have earned the respect of my peers in the fire service. Even more valuable to me was the degree of respect shown to me by most Glendale officers and detectives, as well as many of those outside agencies. This is a very telling statement. The most valuable thing to John Orr, he says, is the respect that law enforcement has shown him. After all, they had told him all those years ago that he was unsuitable to be one of them. Did he have everyone's respect? Uh, probably not everybody's. But John Orr was able to gain the respect of a lot of people. But was that ever going to be enough? Doubtful. 
because his obsessing over it was constant. From December of 1990 through March of 1991, another batch of arson fires hit Southern California yet again, and it was unlike anything anyone had seen ever before. There were 19 fires. 19 fires being deliberately set from one end of the Los Angeles area to the other, all of them in retail businesses again. Nearly every arson investigator was in the area focused on this unprecedented series of fires. So these ones would take place, like I said, between December of 1990 through March of 1991. But there was a break in between them where I think it was mostly February where there were no fires at all. So the first fire, fire number one, occurred on Monday, December 10th, 1990 at a place called People's Department Store in Los Angeles. This place just so happened to be in close proximity to Orr's home in the city of Eagle Rock. And on that particular day, Orr had told his partner that he needed to run home and check on the family dog who had been sick. He was getting old and he needed to be taken outside or else he would have accidents inside the house. This was during their lunch break when Orr left, ostensibly, to handle his dog. It was a little after one when the people's department store was bustling with shoppers. There was a fabric section next to the section where they sold window panels and curtains. One woman who was there shopping was trying to find her kids. They'd been playing around and she had lost track of them. While she was searching, she suddenly was taken aback by the sight of flames coming from the curtain display. They quickly rose to the ceiling, but she still needed to find her kids. Employees began searching for stray customers to help get them to safety. Fortunately, everyone got out of the store and nobody was injured, but the building was quickly engulfed in flames. Not too long after everyone got outside, the roof of the business caved in. Or just so happened to be driving nearby, heading home to attend the dog when he noticed a plume of smoke a short distance away. He said that he went to his house as planned, took care of the dog, and when he left, the smoke was even thicker and more intense, so he figured it was a fire being fed by a structure that was burning. This time, he had a video camera with him, so he's advancing with his technology. He said that he always had his video camera with him so he can document fires. He got back into his city-issued car, turned on its roof lights, and drove towards the smoke. When he got there, firefighters were already on the scene, so he took out his camera and began filming the conflagration. Three days later, on Thursday, December 13th, 1990, John Orr told his partner, Lopez, that he needed to step out again in the middle of the day. A quote-unquote friend of his needed help with picking up her kid at a daycare center in the city of La Cañada and then taking her home to her mother in Burbank. And Joe Lopez was like, okay, thinking in the back of his mind, he's having an affair with this mom. And it was true, he was. Her name was Chris. Two miles or 3.2 kilometers away from this friend's home, there was a store called Mort's Surplus where they sold sporting goods. It was also a place that Orr had shopped at in the past. At approximately 3.40 that afternoon, there was a fire set inside the store to be fire number two. Some cardboard boxes were burning and quickly reached the ceiling, 
which was apparently made out of some highly flammable materials. When firefighters arrived, they found that the smoke coming from this particular fire was exceedingly hot and it had a brown tinge to it. After Orr dropped the child off at his friend's house, he heard the call come over his radio. There was a fire, once again close to where John Orr happened to be. And because the smoke appeared to be an unusual color, Orr thought it might be a good fire for him to take video footage of for the classes that he teaches, so he drove over there. He stood across the street filming for a while, when suddenly his partner, Joe Lopez, showed up because he knew Orr was over in that area, and he just knew that Orr would show up there. John Orr really didn't like the fact that his new partner was just appearing out of the blue, and he needed to put a stop to it. The building that was on fire was nearly completely destroyed. The next day, Friday, December 14th, we have fire number three. It broke out at a Builder's Emporium hardware store in North Hollywood. The store manager saw smoke and fire coming from a shopping cart that was filled with decorative pillows. She, along with some other employees, started throwing all the pillows on the ground to put out the flames, which they were able to do. They did find the remnants of a delayed incendiary device, same as always, a cigarette wrapped with matches and yellow paper. On Monday, December 17th, we have fire number four. Broke out about 1.45 in the afternoon at a five and dime called J.J. Newberry's in the city of Hollywood. The fire was started in a display of bed linens and blankets. There was a significant amount of fire and smoke damage. No incendiary device was recovered, but the fire was labeled as suspicious. On Wednesday, December 26th, a super busy shopping day typically, we are going to see fires number 5, 6, and 7 break out. The first one was at a Bed Bath & Beyond in Sherman Oaks at about 11.45 that morning. A display of pillows was burning, however the sprinklers were triggered and the fire was suppressed. A couple of blocks away at 12.07, two more fires were started at just about the same time, one at a Pier 1 Imports and the other at a Stroud's Linens. As for the Pier 1 fire, the book described it as Flames having been seen shooting from under a mezzanine. I haven't been to a Pier 1 for a while. I don't even know if they're still around. The ones that I used to go to in California are all closed now. But I don't ever really remember seeing a mezzanine in the store. But whatever the case was, the fire was under the mezzanine platform. And that's where apparently the origin of it was started. And then over at the Stroud's Linens... An employee towards the back of the store saw smoke and flames rising from a bed comforter display like some bed linens. This particular fire caused the support beams of the building to weaken and buckle, leading to the entire collapse of the roof. The fires were becoming so frequent that retailers were beginning to hire security guards to specifically keep an eye out for fires. Investigators talked to as many witnesses as they could to try and get any kind of description of anyone who looked suspicious or was seen near the points of origin in any of these stores. One security guard near the Strauss location said that he saw a guy, medium build, he was white, late 30s, dark hair. He wore a purple shirt, black pants, and a jacket, and it looked like he had soot on him. 
Another witness also saw this man. He was walking fast and talking to himself. The following day, a witness called police and said that there was a man in black who was in a bathroom at a restaurant near where the fires were at. The LAPD got there and detained the man until the arson investigators got there. He did smell like smoke. His clothing did. There were some burnt pieces of toilet paper in the toilet, and this guy's hair seemed to have fallen off his head all around the counter in the sink. It was really bizarre. He said that the reason why he smelled like smoke was because he was living in a boarded-up hotel, and he was burning things for warmth. They arrested him and charged him with setting fires in an abandoned building. And in addition to that, they thought that they had caught the serial arsonist. But they were wrong. The last weekend of 1990, Sunday, December 30th, we would have fires number 8 and 9. It was the very first time that the arsonist did not strike on a weekday. The first fire broke out at a place called National Store in Los Angeles, not too far away from Chinatown. A display of pillows and polyurethane were set on fire, but it did not destroy the entire store. Just under an hour later, a second fire was set at a place called Crystal Promotions on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. Looks like this is a place where they sell random stuff for your house, electronics, home decor, kitchen appliances, things like that. A display of plastic home decor items were burned. The fire department arrived quickly enough to keep the store from being completely destroyed. For a while after the new year, January of 1991, the arson fires subsided. But because of the war, Desert Storm, that had broken out in mid-January, the fire departments were kept busy because of the risk of an attack from enemy terrorists on domestic soil. Maybe leaving a bomb somewhere, or suspicious packages, things like that. In the meantime, Orr was getting into his novel, writing at least a dozen pages a day. The primary character in his book was named... Aaron Stiles. He was a firefighter, but also a prolific serial arsonist. An arson investigator named Phil Langtree was hell-bent on capturing the arsonist. The two characters in his book were meant to be nearly identical when it came to their lives, their life experiences, and getting into the career of firefighting. But there was some sort of psychological trigger that caused Aaron Stiles to deviate morally. By the way, some Reddit user figured out an anagram of Aaron Stiles as L.A. Arsonist. So it's just a fun fact, maybe just a coincidence. I don't know. I can't tell what goes on in John Orr's itty-bitty little mind. Two months later, the fires picked back up again. On Sunday, March 3rd, 1991, we would have fires number 10 and 11. The first one broke out at a thrifty drugstore in the city of Wilmington, which is further south than any of the other locations. A little after 1.30 that afternoon, an employee noticed flames and smoke coming from a pillow display. And these flames grew fast and everyone made it out of the store unharmed. By the time firefighters arrived, the entire place was engulfed. Those firefighters were still trying to knock down that blaze when a second fire broke out at another thrifty drugstore not too far from the first one in the city of San Pedro. This was about a half hour later. 
A display of pillows had been set on fire, but the sprinklers were activated and the fire was quickly put out. A little more than two weeks later, we have fires number 12 and 13. This is Tuesday, March 19, 1991. This time, the arsonist was all the way back in North Hollywood again. The first fire that day occurred at a Goodwill store. A mattress had been set on fire. Store employees grabbed the mattress and took it outside before it had a chance to spread to anything else in the store. Only 20 minutes later, still in the city of North Hollywood, a second fire broke out at a house of fabrics. Customers and employees worked together to put the flames out. Some foam pads were lit, but the fire was pretty small and did not spread very fast. Four days later, on Friday, March 22nd, we have fire number 14. This one was at a different Pier 1 Imports located in the city of Hollywood. This one started a little after 1 in the afternoon in a display of pillows. On Wednesday, March 27, 1991, we will have fires 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. So John Orr's partner, Joe Lopez, and some of his buddies were taking a day off in the middle of the week to run up to Big Bear for a day for an impromptu ski trip. Lopez wanted to go, and Orr was happy to give him the day off. What would happen that day would turn out to be one of the most frightening sequences of fires the Southland had ever experienced. Fire number 15 started at 11.40 that morning at a store called D&M Yardage. This was a fabric store. An employee noticed a white guy, medium build, dark hair. He was browsing the aisles. She asked if he needed anything, and he asked if they had any fabric that had any sort of camouflage-type print. She said that they didn't have that. So he kept looking around for a little bit, and he eventually left. No more than 20 minutes later, the employee saw flames. A curtain display was burning. Everybody managed to get out safely, but there was a flashover. So firefighters could not battle the blaze as effectively because of it, and this business burned to the ground. I believe that business was located in the city of Lawndale. It was in that area, like the area of Southern California known as the South Bay. So anyway, 30 minutes later, we would have fire number 16. Two miles or 3.21 kilometers away from the DNM yardage is a store called Stats Floral in the city of Redondo Beach. This time, a customer had been shopping in the aisle where they carried all of their styrofoam products when she happened to notice a piece of yellow paper that appeared to have a bit of smoke coming from it. She removed it from the display and hurried to the front with it. An employee doused it with water. It turned out to be, of course, another incendiary device, same as all the others that had been found at the various fire scenes. A few blocks away from Stats, 20 minutes later, a fire broke out at another thrifty drugstore, also in the city of Redondo Beach. This is fire number 17. A display of patio furniture cushions had been set on fire. The sprinklers were triggered. At the same time, the employees were trying to help keep the flames from spreading. Fire engines got there shortly thereafter and put the fire out completely. About an hour later, we'll have fire number 18 at a J.J. Newberry five and dime store in the city of Inglewood. A display of pillows was set on fire. 
employees managed to put it out before it spread or caused too much damage. And lastly, we have fire number 19 of this series. This one broke out inside a pick and save in the city of Inglewood. Customers shouted for employees that a display of pillows was on fire. They all managed to put it out with fire extinguishers. With five fires in a period of three hours, this was the arsonist's busiest day thus far. And it was very fortunate that nobody lost their lives in any of these 19 fires. Of all the fires that took place between December and March, the one that had the most significant damage to it was the DM Yardage Fabric Store. It was completely destroyed, and because the damage was in excess of $1 million, it meant that the Sheriff's Department could request federal assistance. ATF Special Agent Michael Matasso was asked to send one of his agents to the Sheriff's Office investigating the fire to provide assistance. Michael Matassa would end up being an important figure in the story, so keep him in mind. He sent agents Glenn Lucero and Ken Croak. And what was a bit surprising was the fact that various law enforcement agencies that had fires in their jurisdictions, they did not connect them to one another. And while they were reviewing the Lawndale fire at the DM yardage, they started learning of the other fires in the surrounding areas. And when they looked at the times that the calls for help were made, these guys were the first ones to put it together that there might be a serial arsonist here. Then they started thinking further back. What other fires had happened in retail businesses during business hours were things like pillows or plastics, things that were so flammable, were set on fire. It was known that some of these fires for sure were set using a delayed incendiary device, but it wasn't obvious at all of them because the evidence had been burned away. So all this time, when investigators were talking to witnesses, they would typically ask, did you see anyone near the fire when it started? And it wouldn't have made much sense to ask that because if there was a delayed device, then there wouldn't have been anyone around at the time that the fire actually ignited. They would need to have to have been around maybe 10 or 15 minutes before the fire erupted. The ATF agents immediately felt like they were dealing with someone who was potentially a psychopath, who was a very seriously out-of-control pyromaniac. Special Agent Michael Matassa, when he got the call about the fire in Lawndale, it got him kind of thinking about another fire at a business that he had gone to about seven years earlier. He was new, kind of new, a rookie, I guess you would call it, with the ATF, but he got the call there because the fire had destroyed the entire building and there were fatalities, four of them. This is the Oli's Home Center fire. But before he ever got there, the sheriff's department had already determined that the fire was an accident. Matassa had nearly forgotten about that case. But getting called for these more recent fires, it brought it all back to the surface. A third agent was added to the investigation into the arsons, ATF agent April Carroll. Lucero decided to call themselves the Pillow Pyro Task Force. 
On Friday, March 29, 1991, a meeting was held that included the arson investigators from the surrounding areas, but also it was for the smaller cities that did not have a dedicated arson investigator so they could come and be apprised of what was going on. They could be given all of the information that they had about the arsons because it seemed like any city had a chance of being targeted. It was a team that they formed called FIRST, Fire Investigators Regional Strike Team. At that time, they had made a list of 17 fires that they believed were set by the same person. They were told about the delay device and what it consisted of. Afterwards, the person who led the meeting, LAFD investigator Tom Campuzano, was approached by an investigator from the fire marshal's office, Scott Baker. He needed to talk to him about some more fires. He told him he didn't want to tell him in the meeting. He wanted to tell him privately, but he needed to let him know that there had been a series of fires just like these inside commercial businesses during business hours set in displays with pillows or plastic foam products. There was a cluster of fires in 1987 in the Central Valley and another cluster of fires in 1989 along the Central Coast. He said he didn't want to bring it up because Captain Marvin Casey believed that the person responsible for the fires was a firefighter and Marvin Casey has a fingerprint, a good one that was lifted from one of the delay incendiary devices. Investigator Campuzano thanked Baker and told him that he would definitely be following up. So there was one particular person who was at this first meeting. He was actually the treasurer of FIRST. After Tom Campuzano was finished up with the meeting, the treasurer got up and spoke for a few minutes about their financial situation and related topics. This treasurer, he did not like Campuzano at all. The guy had such an attitude. He thought he was such a big shot with the Los Angeles Fire Department. Like his department was so much more elite than everybody else's because there was no city bigger or more prestigious than his. The treasurer did everything that he could to avoid interacting with anybody from the LAFD. Well, this might have to do with the fact that when the treasurer had tried to join the LAFD. He was so out of shape that he couldn't cut it in the academy that he was shown the door. It was one of a series of rejections that plagued his life. The very first one was when his own mother walked out on him and his brothers and his dad. The next rejection was when he applied for the LAPD and they told him that he was unsuitable. The LAFD was next. He was unsuitable for them too, physically this time, not psychologically, but he was probably that too. These rejections destroyed him. Damn near ruined his life as he sank into a state of misery and despondency. And I think all of us know exactly who this treasurer is, don't we? The following Monday, after a weekend of thinking about all the arsons, the Pillow Pyro Task Force list had grown from 17 fires to 29. Based on what they learned at the meeting, they decided that the first thing that they needed to do was head to Bakersfield and speak face-to-face with Captain Marvin Casey. When they did get to his office, Casey was really excited to tell them about it. 
Unfortunately, Lucero, Croak, and Carol weren't able to share in his enthusiasm because they knew that that angle had already been chased down and they knew that the print didn't come up as a match to the 10 people that he suspected that were involved in the Central Valley and Central Coast fires. When they left, they figured that they wouldn't be dealing with Marvin Casey anymore, but they took a picture of the fingerprint with them, even though they knew it had mostly been useless. The arsonist didn't seem to have a criminal record, so the fingerprint wasn't doing them any good. However, the Pillow Pyro task force team members would see Marvin Casey again. It was just going to take a little bit more time. So the members of the task force tried to run the fingerprint again. Maybe something had changed in the last couple of years. The factor that was going to be different this time around when they ran the fingerprint is that the database not only included the fingerprints of everyone who had ever been arrested, but it also included the fingerprints of every single law enforcement officer in Los Angeles County and every single person who ever tried to apply. So when the computer scanned in the print and ran it, it landed on the application and fingerprint card of a person who applied with the LAPD a long time ago, 20 years ago by then, way back in 1971. And it just so happened they were sitting in a room situated right across the street from where that very fingerprint card was filed. So they moseyed on over to the LAPD headquarters and got the card. Two weeks later, the Pillow Pyro Task Force got a call from the Sheriff's Department's fingerprint examiner. According to the book Fire Lover, he said, You want to tell your arson investigators to keep their mitts off the evidence? The paper was touched by John Orr, left ring finger. They called up their boss, Mike Matassa, and they were like, we need to talk right now. Matassa asked, what about? And they said, we'll tell you when we get there. Pillow Pyro Task Force member Glenn Lucero had a really hard time wrapping his head around the fact that John Orr was emerging as a person that needed to be investigated in the serial arson case. It weighed on him heavily because he knew Orr. He seemed to be dedicated to his work. He was a leader, a teacher, a mentor, and he was friendly and always offering a warm smile. He considered him a friend. More importantly, they were brothers, firefighters and arson investigators. There was no way of getting around the fact that no matter which way this ended up going, it was going to be bad all around. When Lucero spoke to those who needed to be informed about Orr's name coming up as someone who needed to be looked into, Nobody was going to entertain the possibility that Orr had anything to do with this. They were all absolutely stunned at the insinuation, mortified that Lucero was even going there. Nobody believed it. In fact, they refused to even think about it being possible. They wouldn't talk about it, and they told Lucero that he and his team better tread lightly. Yes, you have Orr's fingerprint on this yellow piece of paper, but you have to go into this keeping in mind that there may very well be a perfectly innocent reason that that is so. So don't go jumping to conclusions before you know. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to live this down. And nobody understood that more than Captain Marvin Casey, who faced a lot of criticism several years earlier when he suggested 
that the arsonist was possibly a firefighter. Colleagues began suggesting reasons why Orr's fingerprint had ended up on the incendiary device. Perhaps he had been in the Bakersfield area. We know that he was traveling from Glendale to Fresno and back. Maybe he stopped at the location of one of the fires and everyone just forgot about it. Maybe Orr had stopped to get something to eat or drink and while he was sitting down in a restaurant, he was jotting some things down, taking notes on his pad of paper and when he got up to leave, he inadvertently left his pad behind and the arsonist happened to pick it up and used it to construct one of his devices. The ideas were really far-fetched, but to anyone who knew Orr, him being the arsonist was even more far-fetched than anything else. In fact, it was impossible as far as they were concerned. And there was one really important thing that everybody wanted to know. How the hell did they miss the match of the fingerprint two years earlier? The ATF fingerprint expert was given the latent print and the 10 fingerprint cards of the arson investigators that Captain Casey had narrowed down to, and John Orr was among the 10. How did a veteran fingerprint analyst miss that? They definitely wanted an answer to that question. And so this is how things would be as far as anyone in the firefighting community was concerned. They were unwilling to even consider it. However, when it came to the law enforcement community, they were like, well, hey, not so fast there. Behind the scenes, they were eager and anxious to look deeper into this, unbothered completely by the fact that a firefighter had shot to the top of the persons of interest list. Because, well, there were no other persons of interest. When a cop finds out someone's fingerprint is on an absolutely damning piece of evidence, they're going to latch onto it. They don't look for excuses or far-fetched explanations. A fingerprint is a fingerprint. Nobody else would have been excused from that kind of evidence, no matter what their line of work was. But in order to keep things cool and cordial between the two departments, the police knew that they needed to keep their excitement to themselves. After all, if this turned out to be true, one of their own was turning out to be a serial arsonist, and it wasn't really anything to be overjoyed about. Greg Lucero, however, he didn't just fall off the turnip truck. He knew that the cops were excited. Were they thrilled because they finally had a solid lead? Or were they thrilled because the lead was pointing to a firefighter who some say cops tend to resent because everybody hates cops and everybody loves firefighters? It didn't matter. The police were excited that they had a strong lead. And they were fortunate that it wasn't anyone in their brotherhood. The one thing Lucero knew for sure was that they were going to have to come up with much more evidence before they were going to even be able to start thinking about making an arrest. So the investigation would just keep going for now. The task force team were sent back to Bakersfield to speak to Captain Marvin Casey once again. In the meantime, John Orr and his partner Joe Lopez appeared to be getting along okay. Doing their arson investigation, visiting scenes where there had been fires that were suspected to be arson... Lopez did pick up on the fact that Orr kind of liked to behave like a cop, especially when they were on the road. It was as if they were on kind of like patrol. They weren't out there looking for suspicious people or things, though. They were out there to investigate specific suspicious fires. On one particular day, the partners were driving. Orr was behind the wheel. He always drove. As they went along, 
Lopez noticed that Orr had crossed over into the city of La Crescenta, which they had no business being in. But Lopez had already learned that he could not say anything to Orr about it because he knew that whenever anyone tried to tell Orr to stay in his lane, he would get rid of them. It had always been that way. So as they were driving the streets of La Crescenta, which they should not have been doing, Orr suddenly saw a man running out the front entrance of a store. A short distance behind him was a store employee yelling for him to stop. The man got into his car and began driving straight towards the employee, but he managed to get out of the way before he was struck. Orr turned to Lopez and said, that's assault with a deadly weapon. Now, knowing what we know about John Orr, his first inclination would be to pursue the vehicle. But according to Firelever, the book, because of the other incidents that Orr had been previously involved in, his boss had amended the policy for their firefighters. And the amendment stated, the arson investigator will not engage in police-type pursuits of arson suspects. If an investigator needs to chase a suspect, contact with police dispatchers will be made on the radio and responding uniform police will affect the stop. Yeah, can you imagine? Orr's department had to write a whole new rule just because this guy liked to go out and pretend to be a police officer. How embarrassing. Well, Orr decided to interpret this newly amended policy exactly as it was written, telling Lopez, well, technically, this guy isn't an arson suspect, and that's what the rule says. Arson investigators will not engage in police-type pursuits of arson suspects. And with that, dumbass Orr justified going after the suspect. At first, he didn't actually pursue the guy. He just kind of tried to covertly follow him. At least that's what he was telling dispatch. He radioed where he was and requested police. He gave the location and said that they were going approximately 50 miles or 80 kilometers per hour when the truth was they were going 70 miles or 112 kilometers per hour. So John Orr was in a pursuit. This wasn't on the freeway. This was on the streets. And it is exceedingly dangerous to travel at those speeds on city streets just about everywhere in Southern California. And if you're like me, you like to watch police chases when they pop up in your Facebook watch news feeds, right? Right. So we see this sort of stuff all the time and it can get really dangerous. The last one I watched, the car hit a utility pole, live electrical wires fell down to the ground and the car flipped over. So it was pretty dramatic. But anyway, so John Orr is in this pursuit and he told Lopez that he wasn't going to let this guy go because of some stupid ass policy that they wrote. And he further said that if he backed off, all the cops would do was make him the butt of their jokes again. So this pursuit, non-pursuit, as Orr put it, it got to the point where he needed to turn on his sirens and his lights because they were speeding dangerously through some very crowded intersections. Finally, the suspect turned into a parking lot where he was pretty much trapped in. Orr and Lopez quickly got out of their cars with their guns drawn. They hurried over to the suspect's vehicle. They pulled him out and put him face down on the ground. They didn't have handcuffs because firefighters don't 
have handcuffs because they don't arrest people. And most of the time, firefighters don't pretend that they're police officers unless you are John Orr, right? So, like I said, dreamers, if you're an avid police chase viewer like I am, then you know what these two did when the suspect pulled over is exactly what does not happen at the end of a chase. The cops don't leap out of their cars immediately. They don't go running over to the suspects, waving their guns around. They start making demands on their loudspeaker. They tell the drivers to toss their keys out of the car. They demand that he or she, mostly he, so I'll just say he, they demand that he show his hands out the window. They open the door from the outside. They tell him to get out of the car. They tell him to move away from the car. They tell him to turn around. They tell him to lay down, spread their legs, etc., etc. And then police, several of them, slowly approach the car and the suspect while a couple of officers put handcuffs on the driver. Other officers clear the car to make sure nobody else is inside. And then it's over. Jumping out of the car, running towards the suspect, pulling the driver out of his vehicle just doesn't happen that way. It's too dangerous. It's dangerous for police. It's dangerous for bystanders. I'm not a police chase expert. I just watch them on streaming TV. But anyway, Orr was unwilling to give up his favorite pastime, playing cops and robbers. When the Pillow Pyro Task Force showed back up at Marvin Casey's office, he was kind of surprised to see them. They told him that they were interested in the fingerprint and what it could possibly lead them to in the case. But what they needed to do was have a definitive, documented chain of custody when it came to the incendiary device. Captain Casey said that he could do that. He contacted those who had gathered the evidence any technicians that may have had anything to do with the incendiary device, whoever was the first that gathered the evidence, how it was stored, where it was stored, anyone who took pics of it, who placed it inside any packaging or anything evidence is collected in, if it was sent anywhere, who sent it, who picked it up, who delivered it, and who handled it from there. Fortunately, Marvin Casey had a meticulous record of the incendiary device, and once he laid it all out for the task force, they were comfortable with the fact that they knew for sure that the device had not been handled by anyone else who should not have been handling it, and that it was never touched by anyone who shouldn't have been at any point in time. The device had been handled with a tremendous amount of care. Now remember, Marvin Casey was under the impression that his 10 suspects had been eliminated and that included John Orr. So the task force didn't tell him that they actually identified Orr as being a match to the latent print. However, they could tell that Marvin Casey was dying to know what they had found out because he knew that they didn't come to him for nothing. He was thinking that they were on the same track that he had been all these years, that it was someone related to an arson investigation that was setting these fires. But those agents kept the information close to the vest. They asked Casey several times, is there anybody else that maybe wasn't supposed to be there? But no one ever really questioned it. 
anybody that interacted with anyone in possession of that incendiary device. Lucero could tell that Casey was beyond annoyed with being kept in the dark. After all, he worked the case in a direction that nobody else would even consider. They laughed at him and told him he was crazy, when the fact of the matter is that his theory was correct. Maybe Casey had the right to know what they knew because of that. But in the end, they decided to not tell him. He did collect the evidence and he did preserve the fingerprint, but that was it. But there was still that massive error of overlooking the match to John Orr a couple years earlier. That was a huge error that should have never happened. And because of that, Orr was left free to continue to run amok for a couple more years. If their case had led to John Orr being indicted for arson, there was no denying that Captain Marvin Casey had it solved years before them. They just really couldn't tell Casey that just yet. It was the best decision for them at the time. It wouldn't be long before they would let him in on everything, just not on that day. At this point, the Pillow Pyro Task Force were fairly certain that they knew who this arsonist was, and it was none other than John Leonard Orr. The task force, however, was going to have to bite the bullet and talk to John Orr's bosses at the Glendale Fire Department. They had done all they could up to that point. They needed to get information directly from those in charge at Orr's fire station. There was no getting around it anymore. But once they started speaking to Orr's higher-ups, they realized there were a lot more people that needed to be let in on it because of how high profile or had become within the department. And it wasn't just the high level ATF agents or the fire department superiors who knew. It was starting to spread kind of like gossip. Then it reached the sheriff's department. And they really didn't want the cops finding out because they had a reputation for being the gossipiest of all. The task force had a meeting with Orr's direct supervisor, Battalion Chief Christopher Gray. The news that Orr was being investigated hit him like a ton of bricks, but he didn't wallow in a state of denial for very long. He was like, okay, you know, this task force knows what they're doing and he has to accept what they're telling him. And they told him that their investigation was going to take some time because of the sheer number of arsons that they were looking at. One of the things that they needed right away was to get a recent picture of John Orr so they could present a photo lineup to potential witnesses. They also needed to get phone records from the Glendale Fire Department. And they needed phone records from John Orr's house, too. Before they left, Chief Gray had something else to tell the task force. That John Orr was in the middle of writing a novel. And Orr had shown him the first few chapters, but he didn't care for it because... In his words, it was filthy. Now, Dreamers, I don't have the book, and I haven't read it beyond what was transcribed into the book Fire Lover. So I will be able to share some relevant information from John Orr's manuscripts. At the time, nobody really thought too much about Orr's book or if they would ever have any use for it when it came to their investigation. Chief Gray had one last thing to tell the task force. Orr was slated to travel to San Luis Obispo at the end of April. This was still 1991. There was a training course on safety for police officers. He would be there from Monday, April 29th 
through Friday, May 3rd. The task force knew exactly what the implication was. Or was suspected of the fires that hit the Central Valley area back in 1987, which coincided with the seminar in Fresno, and the Central Coast fires back in 1989 that coincided with the symposium in Pacific Grove. Or might just go for another set of fires while traveling to and from this event as well. ATF agent and head of the Pillow Pyro Task Force, Mike Matassa, he gave Orr a call on April 23, 1991. He knew Orr from working with him in the past, so it wasn't that big of a deal for him to reach out to him. Matassa asked Orr if he could send over a couple of his agents to attend a class that he was teaching that was coming up. Orr told him, yeah, there'd be room, no problem. Then Matassa brought up the Pillow Pyro case. He told him that he was really hoping that any of the arson investigators involved in any of the fires in the area would somehow come up with something to get this case moving forward. And if there was anything that Orr had, that he wanted him to call him right away. And John Orr was like, whoever it is setting these fires, that guy knows exactly what he's doing. He's one of the best. They've got absolutely nothing on this guy except for one incendiary device that they found at the Redondo Beach arson fire. So yeah, John Orr here is really tooting his own horn, right? Calling the arsonist the best. Matassa then asked if Orr was going to the training session in San Luis Obispo, and he said that he was. He asked if his wife was going to go, and Orr said that he wasn't sure. He said, our boss won't let us take our company car. Does yours? And Orr said that he could take his own car or his company car, but he wasn't sure what he was going to drive yet. He reminded him to give him a call if anything on the pillow pyro comes up, and Orr said for sure, and they hung up. Obviously, Matassa was trying to figure out what car Orr was planning on taking to San Luis Obispo, so he was going to have to try and figure out another way. Their plan was to try and keep track of John Orr to surveil him as he traveled to and from the safety training course that was coming up. They were going to have other agents from other areas come and work on the case. They were agents that specialized in undercover work. Because Orr had worked with so many people across California, they needed to make sure that whoever they sent to surveil him were people that Orr wouldn't recognize. There were going to be a team of agents six vehicles and one aircraft involved in this. They wanted to put a tracking device on Orr's car, but the problem was they didn't know which car he was going to be driving, and they needed that information in order to get the court order to track him, so they were going to have to just wait on that. It wasn't until the day before the training course, April 28th, when Orr was observed getting ready to leave in his city vehicle, which was a Ford Crown Victoria. Orr left in the late morning of the 28th. He got on the freeway and he was like a bat out of hell, racing on the freeway steadily at 100 miles or 160 kilometers per hour. The car following him could not keep that pace. So they had to back off and turn it over to the aircraft surveillance for the time being. The rest of the cars had to do what they could to just keep heading towards San Luis Obispo to try to keep up as best as they could. In the meantime, task force member Ken Croak was busy getting the court order so that they could get the tracking device onto Orr's car. 
Orr arrived in San Luis Obispo in the early afternoon and checked into his hotel. The team kept an eye on him until they were sure that he had gone to bed for the night. Around 2 in the morning, the tracking device was attached to the undercarriage of his car near the back, sort of under the trunk. It had a small antenna that needed to be extended, but it was pretty well hidden where it was placed. They would be able to keep track of Orr's location, but this device, the way it worked, they needed to be near it in order for them to pick up the tracker's signal, so it's a little bit obsolete now. So the training course at San Luis Obispo had started. The surveillance team was bored, but they were trying to be patient. They needed to wait each day until the training sessions were done. So at the end of the first day of training on Monday, April 29th, they watched as Orr left the session and went to his car. He headed over to a thrifty drugstore, and they knew that there had been some fires at some thrifty locations. So they were watching very closely and very carefully. One agent followed Orr into the store, but he went to the cashier so he couldn't see what he was getting. Orr shoved the items that he purchased into his pocket and he left. The agent followed and watched as Orr opened his trunk and then closed it, and then he drove back off to his hotel. The agents went back into the thrifties and asked what the pudgy middle-aged guy had just bought, and they were told he had purchased two packs of cigarettes. They even got the receipt from the cashier because Orr didn't want it. And this was a big deal, a huge deal, because it was common knowledge by everyone who knew John Orr that he did not smoke, ever. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop the story here. We will pick this back up with the Pillow Pyro Task Force surveilling Orr's movements while he is attending the training course in San Luis Obispo. He's got his cigarettes. He doesn't smoke. So what's he going to do from there? Don't forget to follow California Dreaming on Facebook. Join the discussion group. Support on Patreon if you have a dollar or two to spare each month. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you all so much for listening. I really hope that you are enjoying the series. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>